0: I also invite you, as you find your seat, to find your place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going through this one verse or phrase at a time. We won't be here very long because we're, we're not so much digging into the text, but unpacking the theme in the rest of Scripture. Three very familiar verses, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, and 18. They say this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you recognizing our dependence and asking for your help. We're grateful for the word you have given to us. We're grateful for your spirit that is working in us as we study and learn. And we pray that you would help us focus our attention on what we're learning and that your spirit would make us aware of the changes we need to make as a result of your truth. Unite us as a church family and compel us more and more to love Christ and to serve him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So our service ends in about 40 minutes or so. And when Sunday morning service ends for us and when Sunday morning classes end for the Spanish classes, what is the most common thought in people's minds? We've just heard the word of God, we've just sat in a classroom or a service with brothers and sisters, and, and what comes next? What is everybody thinking about? Food, lunch, lunch wins. You don't need an official survey I think to know that. Most people have on their mind what's for lunch. And where should I go and what should I order and who else is going with me? Church doesn't even have to end for you to start thinking about lunch, especially if you didn't have breakfast. If you weren't thinking about lunch, you're thinking about lunch now. And you're thinking about what am I going to get? I can get a carne asada burrito or a nice cheesy pizza or a hamburger, or some ribs, or a fresh chicken salad, if you prefer that. And if you don't like those options, that's okay, because there's endless options available near us. And then you add to that all the side dishes you can have, like french fries, or mashed potatoes, or grilled vegetables, or whatever else, rice and beans. Why is food such a consuming element of our lives? I schedule a meeting with someone. I say, where are you going to be? Where am I going to be? And now you're thinking, okay, where are we going to eat? Let's find a nice place. And you're researching, you know, where, where are you going to go? Why does food demand so much? The next women's lek and lab is going to be food. Well, for one reason, we have an abundance of food. So we have to make decisions as to what we're going to have for each meal. But more significantly than that, we were designed by God to consume it. He made us that way. He gave Adam a physical body. He breathed into him the spirit of life, and that physical body is designed for food. He placed Adam in a garden with all kinds of fruits for him to eat. Our bodies both require and delight in food. So after enough time has passed, some of us more time than others, we're gonna naturally begin to think about our next meal. And that's an endless Cycle till the day you die. You're gonna to want to eat again. Well, I've doomed our attention span by talking about lunch. But I think it does serve us the idea of food as a helpful illustration to compare and contrast with the topic of our study today, which comes to us from Paul's command in First Thessalonians 5:17. He writes, Pray without ceasing. It's only two words in the Greek. Paul uses an adverb which could be translated unceasingly. And in the Greek, it actually comes first. So it's got the emphatic position. So a more literal and more direct translation would be unceasingly pray. To say it another way, Paul said to the church, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Our little kids learn from... Their parents, you learn from coming to church what it is to pray. Prayer, at its most basic definition, means we're talking to God. God speaks to us today through His Word. We read His Word. We study His Word. We want to apply His Word. And we respond to Him. We speak to God in prayer. That's all prayer is. Prayer is the expression of our relationship to God. And it is a privilege we have won through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Part of what God was making known in the Old Testament was that you could not come to him on your own. You are a sinner, and you will not stand before a holy God. You deserve death. But even as he freed them from Egypt, there was the Passover. A, a lamb died in every home so that they would be passed over and come before God, and then perpetually, either in feasts or in actual daily sacrifices, you had to go and give an animal. He had to die so that you could be accepted by God. A priest had to make that sacrifice on your behalf to reconcile you to God. We're on the other side of that. We know who our true priest is is Jesus Christ. He's our great high priest and not only did he make sacrifice for sinners, he himself was the sacrifice for sinners and when Jesus died, he said it is finished and the veil was torn in the temple, the veil separating the holy of holies, a place where only one man was supposed to go one day a year and be with God. That temple, that 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 that, uh, that veil in the temple was torn as an expression of God's disapproval now of that religious system, but also as an expression of the, that, that the window of heaven had been opened, and everyone now, through the sacrifice of Christ, has bold and confident access to God. That's the privilege and the blessing of prayer. And Paul says to the church, "Pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying." There are a couple ways to understand that command. Some people take it to mean that prayer should be continuous. Others think it, it it refers to prayer being continual. Those are two different words. Continuous means always. It's an ongoing, uninterrupted, constant reality. And one example of that would be gravity. Gravity is continuous. It's constant. It never stops. It's always taking place. You don't drop something and say, oh, well, gravity must have been turned off for a little bit. That's a reality in this life on this planet. Continual, on the other hand, similar to saying something is annual, means it happens on a regular basis. This would be like sleep. Some of you might wanna be able to sleep continuously, but that's just not possible. Sleep is not a constant reality in our lives. It's It's a regular, recurring reality. So which of those ideas did Paul intend to communicate? He doesn't explicitly say. And so many have said that on the one hand, there is a sense in which prayer should be continuous, regular. And that is when we're dealing with the attitude of prayer. We are always to have in our minds, not just the word of God, but the presence of God. Everything we do is before him. In Latin, it's corum deo, before the face of God. That attitude of prayer is to be in everything that we do. On the other hand, if we're talking about the action of prayer, which typically for us is folding your hands and closing your eyes or speaking out loud or in your mind, that's something we can't do uninterrupted the entire day. You can't go through the whole day with your hands closed, with your hands clasped and your eyes closed, speaking to God because you're called by God to do other things, to serve others, to be silent at times. When you look at the adverb and the way Paul uses it, he used it a couple of times in in this letter and then in his other letters, I think the evidence does lean slightly toward the second idea of it being a regular pattern. Although that doesn't mean, again, that the attitude of prayer is not true. it's, It's possible for us to be in any moment thinking about God. It's necessary for us. We're called to do everything, whether we eat or drink, to the glory of God. So he's always to be in our mind. But I want to focus more today on, on the action of prayer. And what Paul is getting at for the churches and for the individual Christian is that the action of prayer, the practice of it, is to be a normal and regular part of the Christian life. It's also supposed to be a regular part of a local church. We don't see it in the English translation because there's no distinction between singular and plural when we give commands, but in, you can see it in Spanish. This is a plural command. There's a corporate element to it. More colloquially, y'all need to pray. Okay, it's a plural command. Individually as Christians and corporately, we are to be people of prayer. But why is it that, I assume for most of us, if you're like me, prayer does not consume your life the way food does? Why doesn't prayer rise to that level of attention we were designed to eat food. We were designed to delight in food. But even more so, we were designed by God to live in relationship to Him. And we were designed to delight in Him. So, why don't we pray more often? Each of us could answer that question in a variety of ways for our own individual circumstances. We're busy, we're tired, we forget. But I think one of the answers is that many times we don't pray because in the practice of our life, we will ignore or minimize or forget the reasons why we need to pray. We forget the the motivation and and the benefits of prayer. So what I want to do today is simply remind you of the reasons we pray, and hopefully in the mercy of God, it, it, it prods us toward praying more in line with this command, always, regularly. Last week, I think I titled the sermon, Reasons to Rejoice, so today we could just call it Reasons to Pray. And for many of us, these principles will likely be reminders only, but we need to take them to heart for our own prayer life, but also because of the people that we're ministering to and teaching. We're teaching our kids to pray, we're teaching our grandkids to pray, we want to encourage others to pray, brothers and sisters. Why is prayer so important? Why do we pray in studying the topic this past week, like, like the time before, I focused my attention just on the New Testament because there's so much there. So many, the entire book of Psalms is a book of prayers. There are so many examples of prayers as well in the New Testament, but, but I, I was drawn to the reasons. I'm just going to share the fruit of that work with you. And for each reason, I'm gonna give you kind of a double outline. I'm gonna state it from God's perspective, but I'm also gonna state it from our own earthly perspective. Number one, we pray because in prayer, God is pleased. If you're taking notes, you can write just that. God is pleased. That's the heavenly side of prayer. He delights in our prayers. The human side is that prayer is an expression of love. It's an expression of love. I'd like you to go with me to Matthew chapter six. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus addresses many teachings that the people had heard either from the Old Testament or through the Jewish tradition. And he's correcting those things with the truth of God. Matthew chapter six, verse six, it's a, it's a beautiful reminder and it's an important principle to start with because it's not one that we always have in mind. He addresses various topics, but in chapter 6, verse 5, he begins to address the topic of prayer. The wrong way to pray, Jesus says, is to make the focus of prayer us. That's what the Pharisees did. Jesus called them hypocrites. They wanted to be in a public place so that when it was time to pray, they dropped right there, and everybody saw them praying. In other words, they prayed for themselves. But notice what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. He says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus connects prayer to a divine reward. And if God is rewarding us, that indicates that something about our prayer pleases him. It makes sense for us to say that God is pleased when we evangelize. God is pleased when we tell the truth, even at personal cost. But why why prayer? Why does God reward us for praying even in private? Why does that please God? Well, it's not because God is pleased simply in the physical act of us praying, whether you stand, whether you kneel, That's not intrinsically what pleases him. What pleases him is the relational connection that prayer both expresses and enhances. In our mind, we might say, I gotta pray, it's a spiritual discipline, and it is at times, but in uh, in God's view, prayer is not just a spiritual discipline that you earn points for, it's a relational connection between our Heavenly Father and his children. If you decide to pray to Allah of Islam or pray to Buddha or pray to the Virgin Mary, God is not pleased with that because they are not the true God, the God of Scripture. There's no relational connection to God if you pray to someone else. God delights in the relationship of prayer, not simply in the physical act. Just as an example, to contrast, my kids right now are in a summer reading program at the library. You go, you pick up a little paper. Every time you read a book, you write the name. I think a parent signs or checks. And after you read a certain number of books, you go back to the library and they give you a prize. So something about the library, which our taxes support, the government is somehow, for some reason, pleased in our children reading books. But that pleasure is connected simply to the act of of reading. There's a box that gets checked and they move on. Contrast that pleasure with the pleasure of a grandfather when his little granddaughter comes up and says, Grandpa, can I read a book to you? Can I read you a story? Grandpa is gonna take pleasure in the reading of the book not as a physical act. Oh, my daughter, my granddaughter knows how to read. It's not just that. It's not just that it checks a box, it's the relational connection that sitting in the lap and reading to him expresses and enhances. That's the pleasure. That's what prayer is. Prayer is relational and it pleases God because it's relational. He wants us to talk to him and he delights in our prayers. Jump over just a few books to Acts chapter 10 if you want. Acts chapter 10, we see this principle applied to one specific man whose name was Cornelius. He was a Gentile. And he was home one day and received a vision. And in the vision, Acts chapter 10, he sees a mighty and glorious angel. Acts chapter 10, verse four, and it says there, Cornelius stared at the angel in terror. And he said, what is it, Lord? What do you want? And the angel said to him, your prayers and your alms, your good deeds, your giving to the needy, your prayers and your arms, your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God received them, he delighted in them. Down in verse, skip down to verse 31, Cornelius is telling Peter what had happened, and he repeats the same thing. Verse 31. And the angel said, Cornelius, your prayers. Your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Cornelius is telling Peter, God told me he hears my prayers. He remembers them. He's pleased with them. Don't forget. We we have to make sure we don't forget that element of prayer. It's not a checklist. Oh, we're going to eat. We got to pray, guys. It's not that. It's like thanking mom for the meal that, that she's helped bring to us. You're communicating with God Some of you know the worship song, um, take joy, at the end of it says, take joy, my king, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. That that song is talking about our, our song, our worship. But the same principle applies to our prayers. Our prayers are an expression of our love for God and they please him. Can you imagine a woman saying, I love that man, I just, I don't like talking to him. In fact, I try to avoid it if I can, but I love him. A wife might want to say that. But clearly, there's something wrong, right? How can we say we love God and then not make it a priority to talk to him? He loves us, he receives our prayers with joy, with satisfaction. In Revelation 5 and in Revelation 8, there's a picture of angelic beings coming before the throne of God holding bowls full of incense and the smoke rises as an expression of worship, a pleasing aroma. And in both chapters it says, the bowl, in the bowl are the prayers of the saints. When you pray to God, it's, it's a form of Worship. And God delights in it because he loves us, because he accepts us in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. You're his child, and he delights in hearing you. Now, because God loves us, not only is he simply pleased with our prayers, he responds to them. And that's the second reason to pray. We pray because God is pleased. We pray also because God hears us. God hears us. Heavenly, the gates of heaven are open From the earthly side, we pray because it's an expression of faith. Prayer is an expression of faith. When you go out, if you go out to a restaurant today after church, you don't give your order to the person sitting across the table from you or the person at the table next to you. You might ask them for their opinion. You might try to figure out what you're going to order, but the order has to be given to the waiter. He or she is the one who's going to make it happen. And then eventually the analogy breaks down but the point is simple you talk to the person who's going to make something happen. In Matthew 21:22 Jesus says to his disciples, "Whatever you ask in prayer to the Father, you will receive if you have faith." Jesus was motivating his disciples to pray because he says God will respond. Jesus wanted his disciples to pray with confidence in the power of God and in the hearing of God in in, in his heart. And and it's it's, it's an interesting or even tricky passage to understand because we know that Christians all the time pray for things that don't happen. You can pray for healing. You can pray for some difficult circumstances in your own life or in your children's life to be removed, and it doesn't happen. Paul prayed, Paul prayed, he said three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, and it didn't go away. So, what did Jesus mean when he said, Pray and you will receive? The answer has to be connected to the caveat he gives, which is, Excuse me, if you have faith. If you have faith, it can't be just saving faith. And it can't mean simply that you believe God can do something or that he's going to do something. Faith, in a bigger essence, is is a surrender to the will of God. It's an alignment to the will of God. I'm walking in faith. And we know that in this life, we don't know all the details of God's will, but we do know that God hears us. He hears us and he responds to our prayers. He is going to act for our good, even if he doesn't give us exactly what we want or exactly in the timing that we want it. Romans 8 tells us our prayers are imperfect. We don't know exactly what we're supposed to be praying for, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us perfectly. It's perfectly aligned with the will of God, and God answers that prayer. 1 John 3, just to add some parallel passages, 1 John 3 says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So you're, again, aligned with the righteousness of God, you're aligned with the will of God, and God gives us what we ask for. 1 John 5, more clearly, says this, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. We ask for healing because we want comfort and peace. But even if God doesn't give us physical healing, he can give us comfort and peace. He answers the heart behind the prayer. We pray, we go to God because we know he's all powerful and we pray because we know he hears us as our heavenly father. That was part of the point Jesus made in his parable in Luke 18 about the widow who went to a judge and was saying, I need justice, please protect me and the judge didn't do anything and then she kept going to him and kept going to him and finally the judge goes in and says, okay, I'll give it to you. The point he was making, not that God is a reluctant giver, that James says the opposite, he gives without reproach. But the point is, we are to go continually because God will respond to prayer. In Luke 3, 21, it says that Jesus, after he was baptized, began to pray. And while he was praying, it says, the heavens were opened. That happened in in a visible way at that time. I'm sure clouds poured out, sunlight shone through. Remember, the spirit comes down on him in the form of a dove. That was a a visible way that that happened, but that same thing happens spiritually every time you or I pray. The heavens are opened. You come before the throne of the almighty king in the name of Christ, and he hears you. I don't remember where I first heard it. There was a story of, uh, it was a quick line of of, uh, prayer, but it said, Only one person in the entire kingdom can wake up the king in the middle of the night because he wants a glass of water. And that's the king's son. And that's the essence of prayer. We go before an almighty God and he receives us. What what, what good is it to pray if we don't believe God's going to do anything about it? That would be meaningless. We pray in faith knowing God hears us and he responds. He may not give us exactly what we want. My kids come to me and say, can I get a piece of candy? And sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is a little later. Sometimes the answer is no. But I'm responding. They come to me because they know I'm the one who has the authority to say yes or no or they go to mom. One of the most well-known passages regarding the power of prayer is James five sixteen. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working That's the point he's trying to make. He goes on to say, Elijah was a man just like us. He's nothing nothing special about him, he was a man, and he prayed and God answered his prayers. God hears us. And it's not so much, the wording, we understand prayer is powerful, but we understand theologically, it's not that prayer is powerful, it's not our words, it's that God is powerful, and he hears us and he responds. Theologically, there is some mystery to this, and I don't want to ignore that. God is sovereign, he knows everything. Psalm 139 says, all your days are written in his book. Whether or not you get healed tomorrow, whether or not you get in a car crash tomorrow, whether or not you come into some early inheritance tomorrow, God knows that. He knows, Jesus said, what you're going to ask before you ask it. So sometimes people go, well, then why ask? Well, you've taken one aspect of theology and you've stretched it into places that now make you disobedient to the command of God and far from the heart of God. We can't let those theological truths keep us from praying because again, prayer is relational. There are times where I know my kids want something, but they don't ask, so I don't give it to them. Who knows what it is that God has not done or given to us because we haven't asked him. Jesus, more than any of us, understood the sovereignty of God. God's plan is set out, it's ordained, And if he prayed, he would escape by himself to pray alone. He would spend the night in prayer. Paul, the apostles, David, the rest of the psalmists, they know the power of God, and it's the power of God that leads them to pray. They go to God in faith because he will respond. Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher, commenting on this mystery between human prayers and divine sovereignty, said this, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. What a picture, because you can't say God does everything, so I do nothing. Prayer is the slender nerve, something small, unimpressive, weak on its own, and it moves the muscles of omnipotence. You have to believe that. You have to believe it theologically and intellectually, but you also need to believe it practically. You need to go to God in prayer, by faith. He hears you and he acts for your good and for his glory. That's why we pray. Number three, we pray because God sustains us. God sustains us, from, from the earthly side we pray because it's an expression of dependence dependence we talk to God because we love him we talk to God because we believe in him he's the one who's going to answer these prayers we also talk to God because we need him it's not an option I haven't heard this argument out loud for a while but growing up I remember hearing people say I don't like Christianity I don't like this idea about Jesus because I don't need a crutch in my life you guys religion is a crutch I don't need God's help to live my life things are fine. And and it doesn't matter how strongly they believe that, it didn't make it true. And for those of us who know Christ and those of us who know the truth of God's word, we know the analogy of the crutch doesn't even go far enough. He's not the crutch, he's the life support. He's our beating heart. He's our our oxygen. We depend on him for everything. Colossians tells us he he upholds, uh, Hebrews, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians, in him, all things hold together. Jesus told his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of value, nothing of significance. That's the attitude we have to have every morning. God, I need your help. I'm coming home to my kids. I want to love them. God, I'm going to work. I need your help. God, I'm going to check my email. I'm going to read the news on my phone. I need your help, God. Christ came, God in human flesh. But, he, but even, even though he was God and is God, he lived as a man because he was living the life that would be credited to us. And as a, a human, he did everything in complete connection to the Father and independence on the Holy Spirit. That's how we're called to live. We're to live in, in desperation for God's help. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples, You go pray that you may not enter into temptation. He said, The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Take heed, uh, uh, take heed lest you fall. If you and I truly understood and accepted that statement, we would be devoted to prayer. We need prayer. To not go to God regularly, depending completely on him, is an act of arrogance and pride. And we need to repent. When Jesus gave his disciples an example of a prayer, they said, help us pray. Here's how you should pray. He taught them, we call it the Lord's Prayer. It was actually, some people call it the Disciples Prayer. Here's how you should pray. And he includes in that prayer prayer. A request for food that day. A request for forgiveness. A request for protection and deliverance from evil. Why? Because he wanted his disciples to be completely dependent on their heavenly father. And that's what prayer expresses. We need God. Let's go to number four. Why else should we pray? Number four, we pray because God leads us. God leads us. Prayer is us going to God seeking direction, seeking wisdom. From an earthly perspective, prayer is an expression of submission. I love you. I need you to sustain me, but I need you also to guide me. I'm always impressed and convicted when I read in the Old Testament David and the battles he would have and he goes in and he wins this battle and the enemies run away and you go, okay, just chase them and kill them all now. And he stops and he goes, Lord, should I chase them or should I just be done with it? And God answers. Lord, should I go this way or this way? He's stopping to ask God because he knew he wanted to depend on God to guide him in every decision. That's godly Humility. The supreme example of of that submission is our Lord Jesus Christ. Most of you know this. He goes before his heavenly father in the garden of Gethsemane. On the night he's gonna be betrayed. He's gonna be arrested. He's gonna be falsely tried. He's gonna be arrested the next day. And he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's expressing his pain. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he goes back and he wants to catch up with his disciples and they're asleep. So he comes back and he prays the same thing again. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Prayer is not intended to be your grocery list to God. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Good, I got it. Now I'm done. Prayer is not a tool God gives us just so life is easier and more convenient. Prayer is an expression of our submission to his perfect, all-wise plan And that phrase that Christ used is an essential element of prayer. Your will be done. We're surrendered to his plan. The opening words of of, of the Lord's prayer are words of submission. God's plan is the priority. God's purposes are the priority, not ours. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. James expresses the same heart of submission because he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He doesn't say, you know, if you're not sure what to do, just just give it your best shot. You know, you did your best. Don't worry about it. He says, go to God, depend on him, submit to him, and ultimately we're submitting to the truth in his word. That's what true wisdom is. True wisdom is to know and to apply the word of God. So we're praying, Lord, give me your truth. Lead me by your truth. That's the heart of submission. We're going to have to make decisions that aren't clear in Scripture, but if you're seeking to honor God, that's what He blesses. Prayer expresses submission to God. Lastly, a final reason to pray. This is more practical now or or corporate. We pray because God unites us. God unites us. From an earthly perspective, prayer is an expression of our unity. Again, going back to the Lord's Prayer, the opening line is, our Father. He gives them a sample prayer, but he does it not in the singular. He doesn't say my Father. He says our Father. And then later in the prayer, you see the corporate elements again. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Prayer is an expression of our unity in Christ. And in that regard, it's, it's very similar to the other expressions of our faith. We, we, we come together at church, we, we, we speak to one another, we sing together, we hear the word of God being preached. We're gonna gather tonight, we're, you're all invited, members or visitors, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. We're gonna enjoy a meal together. All those things are reminders that we are united in Christ. You can eat at home, you can pray at home, you can listen to a sermon at home, but we gather to do it together because God has gathered us together as his people. And prayer is a, another reminder. Even if you're praying alone, biblical prayer is going to connect you to your brothers and your sisters because you pray for them. Repeatedly in his letters, I have countless examples and and, and principles of how we should pray. Paul says, I pray for you. I pray for the churches. I pray for my coworkers. He prayed for the Romans. He prayed for the Ephesians. He prayed for the Thessalonians. He prayed for the Colossians, for the Philippians. He prays for Timothy. He prays for Philemon. He gives thanks to God for them they're united in Christ eternally and the practical expression of that unity is prayer. I prayed with them, I pray for them. In Ephesians 6, you have the armor of God, the shield, the helmet, the belt, the, the, the shoes, the breastplate, but after all that, it says we're told and pray at all times for all the saints. That's the Christian life. James 5, 16 also tells us specifically we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. So prayer isn't just about you connecting with God, it's a a reminder and a way to connect with the rest of the saints, the rest of the people. The relational aspect, the human relational aspect in prayer is also seen at the end of the Lord's prayer. He says, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And then he says this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So on the one side, that can be used to talk about uh, salvation. If you're not a forgiving person, you have not experienced the forgiveness of God. Therefore, the fact that you're not forgiving is evidence that you're not going to be forgiven by God. But there's also a practical side. And that is that there exists a connection between, even in salvation, there is a connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with our brothers and our sisters. If things aren't right between me and someone else, a brother or sister, then things are not right with my heavenly father. When my kids argue or fight, it doesn't just involve the two of them, it involves me, their dad who has to see it and hear it, and their mom. That's why Jesus, I think it's Matthew 5, says, go, be reconciled to your brother before you offer your worship to God. It's not so someone could say, you know what? Forget it, I'm just never going to worship God because I'm not going to deal with this. It's go do that and then come worship. Relationships matter to God because God cares about his children. So in Mark 11, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, we've already heard this principle. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus connects our prayer life to forgiveness because he knows that the Father and he himself cares about unity. I cannot go to God in acceptable worship if I have not done my part to make things right with a brother or a sister in Christ. And one final expression of this principle is in First Peter. It's just the last verse I'll bring up, First Peter chapter three, verse seven. It should sound familiar to us husbands. It says, "Husbands. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with your wife in accordance to knowledge would be a more literal translation. Get know her. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life." so that your prayers may not be hindered. My kids are still young. We have melamine plates at home. They're, they're basically Frisbees. That's very different than the fancy plates that some of you might have. I think we have a couple, you know, that they can break. You treat them differently. You're not disparaging them. You're aware of their value and their worth and you treat them appropriately. Man, we cannot take warnings like this lightly. If you're not showing your wife the love and the care and the appreciation and the tenderness and the respect that God calls you to give her, he says here, your prayer life will be hindered. If that bridge of unity between a man and his wife is broken, then the bridge of his prayers will be broken as well. Because there's a connection between prayer and unity. I hope those principles have been helpful to you. I understand that prayer is one of those topics that any one of us can be made to feel guilty about. We all could say, yeah, I need to pray better. I need to pray more often. I need to be more devoted to prayer. We can all grow in that area of life, but hopefully these principles are reminders and motivators and and challenges to continue in prayer. We need to teach our kids that. It's not a checklist. It's not something you have to do because the church says you have to do it. It's an opportunity to delight in God. We pray with love, knowing that God is pleased. We pray in faith, knowing that God hears us and responds. We pray in dependence, knowing that it's God who sustains us. We pray in submission, knowing that God will lead us. And we pray in unity, knowing that God has united us to his family. So you look at that list, What does it mean then when we don't pray? What are we communicating when we fail to give prayer the level that it demands? We're saying that we don't love God, that we don't believe in God, that we don't depend on God, that we don't submit to God, that we don't care about God's people. May God forgive us when that's the case and may he grant us the grace to repent and to help others. May God move in our hearts so that prayer isn't just a duty or a discipline but like a a tasty meal, may we genuinely look forward to prayer because we need it and because we delight in our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, you have graciously given us access to you, the almighty creator. You've given us a book, the book of Psalms, with specific examples of how to pray when we don't know what to pray in times of joy, in times of despair and hopelessness, in times of grief, in times of fear. You've given us a a cloud of witnesses. We see the faith of men and women in the scriptures of people who prayed to you, We see them praise you, we see them confess their sin, we see them give thanks to you, we see them trust in you. We pray you would make us people of prayer. We live in a world that wants to depend on itself, self-sustaining, self-authenticating, self-actualizing, believing that we can do the best things for ourselves. And it's a culture and it's an attitude and it's an air of pride and arrogance. It's a refusal to come before a holy God, a God who we have no right to come before on our own, but God who graciously calls us to himself by the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that those in our homes and those around us who don't know you would come to know the sacrifice of Christ, would come to glory in his death and in his resurrection. And we pray that all of us who know you would be marked by the joy and the peace that only you can give because we trust in you and come to you in prayer. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.